Merry Christmas, and welcome back to Scripture Central's Come Follow Me. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I've got a special Christmas lesson that's not my usual. I figure I've given three Christmas um, videos so far, and I also have chosen different portions of the Christmas story to tell. This year, also in the New Testament, we were blessed with a week or two around the first nativity chapters in Matthew and Luke's account. And so I thought for Christmas this year, I would give you a gift of a little bit of a different sort. I want to start with a story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. As you know, the New Testament chronologically starts with a priest and a priestess. We are told that Zechariah is from Aaron and his wife Elizabeth is also from Aaron and that he begins the story in the temple. I think this is very significant that our New Testament has that beginning. And I wanted to focus on that with you today. As we've gone through the Old Testament and the New Testament together, I've emphasized a lot of details about the ancient temple, but I'd just like to remind you that Christmas stories that we have in our Gospels began at Herod's temple. Now, this was not necessarily a, a pure place at the time. In fact, some of the righteous priests were so upset about it, they joined a group called the Essenes and they left the temple and they tried to keep a holy priesthood line out in the desert. And we know of many of the writings from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in Qumran. Elizabeth and Zechariah lived close enough to the temple that he could work there. At that time, a priest had to serve for five weeks a year. They came for the three pilgrimage feasts every year. In the springtime, Passover, then 50 days later, Pentecost, and then the Feast of the Tabernacles or Feast of Booths in the fall time when they had their Thanksgiving celebration. All of these pilgrimages, the priests had to come in and work for one week, and then the priests also had the assignment for two other weeks. Now, the Levitical line um, had to come in a little more often. Remember, the Levites are far more numerous because that's a larger, you, you've got 200 years before Aaron of procreation that allowed the Levitical line, and so they helped with the um, the taking of the animals and washing them and preparing them for the altar. They helped with the cleanup. They helped with the music. Music. They helped with the police or the, the guards around the temple. There were a lot of different positions that the Levites held. But the priest's responsibility was to take the animal and lay their hands on the head and vicariously transfer either the sin offering or the thank offering, whatever the sacrifice was for, onto the animal. And they were to all represent, of course, the coming forth of the great and last sacrifice of our Savior. Jesus of Nazareth, who were celebrating his birth at this time of year. I want to focus a little bit more on this idea of the temple. Remember, in the ancient world, in order to serve as a priest at the altar, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. Now, originally, it was firstborn. So from Adam all the way up to Moses, the priesthood was given to the firstborns. But at the time of Moses, we read in Exodus chapter 40, verse 15, that Aaron was taken and his sons, and Moses is given the commandment, thou shalt anoint them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. And so, um, you know, over a thousand years later, Zechariah is still offering um, the offerings that were outlined in the law of Moses. 
at the foot of Sinai when he received these instructions, when Moses received these instructions from the Lord as the children of Israel left Egypt. I believe all of them are to type, typify of Christ. And so now we have a priest in the temple performing those rituals that were to testify of our Savior's coming, testify of our Savior's life and mission and atoning sacrifice. And in the biblical priesthood time, the priest wore white linen. There's only one reigning high priest at the time. And initially, it was the righteous Aaron. But sometimes the firstborn was not righteous, but it was still a position for life if you received it, and it had to be a descendant of Aaron. But by the time of Herod the Great Builder, so by 20 BC, when he begins revamping the temple, actually he comes in to start serving at 40, 37 is when he takes power, 37 BC. He doesn't want a lot of Jewish rulers. So he disseminates the Sanhedrin and he says, I will choose who's the high priest. And it's no longer a direct descendant, the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn of Aaron. It just has to be anyone from Aaron. And so he chooses people who will do what he wants. It's sort of a puppet position. It's a position who can bridge um, Herod's needs and the, the law of Moses' directions in the book of Leviticus. Well, unfortunately, Herod was always upset about someone, and he had people coming and going. In one year, at one time, he replaced multiple high priests, but usually the high priest was able to serve for a year or two. But it used to be for life. It was, it was tragic during this time, but they still wore these set clothes. So we assume that when Zacharias came to the temple for one of these five weeks that he was there to serve, when angel Gabriel came to announce the birth of the Messiah and his son, the prophet, to prepare the way for the Lord. He was probably dressed in these white linens that we see in some drawings, as well as um, the text describing them as a head covering, uh, robes, and a sash around the waist. Now, the high priest did not wear white linens except for the Day of Atonement. Otherwise, he wore very colorful things that were to remind people of the Garden of Eden. He had pomegranate sewn in and bells, and, and it was bright blue and very different clothing. By the time of the New Testament, the priesthood was not appreciated as something righteous. There were a few, though, and that's where we believe we come in with Zacharias married to Elizabeth. During the New Testament period, we see the Lord ordaining and giving power and authority to people who are not from Aaron's line. We're told that Jesus restored a kingdom of priests and priestesses. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, He's going to talk more about that. We just referred to that last week in chapter 1 and chapter 5. Also, a couple of weeks back in Peter, we read in chapter 2, verse 5, Ye are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then skipping down to verse 9, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, this is fascinating. What, did, what happened in Christianity between the time of Zechariah performing that and then 2 Peter calling a generation of royal priesthood? And then how does that affect us in our day and age? And how does the priesthood fit? I just thought that this Christmas that my present for you would be a little bit of my research on this subject. We know historically that the Catholic Church 
honored the position of priests as a direct line from Peter, and that their popes then had the authority to ordain others as priests. And so they claimed this priesthood line of authority coming from the apostolic church. Now, historians like myself, and I studied with the Catholics, uh, my doctorate is with at Marquette, um, we have a problem with this because there's these huge hiatuses and there's popes doing bad things and there's jumping and, you know, we have 300 years before the first pope and how are you claiming that from Peter? So historically, it's a little delicate. Another part of this history is Martin Luther. And we know as he was being raised up to be a priest in the Christianity, that he became very, very frustrated with a lot of the challenges. And he wanted some reformations that he felt we had strayed in the Christian faith in the 16th century from what was biblically recorded. And so he asked for some reformations, and they were not granted. And so after his passing, his friends began a movement to start instigating some of these things and actually broke away from the mainstream of the Christian faith. One of the things that Martin Luther requested in these 95 theses was a priesthood of all believers. And as the Protestant Reformation occurred over the next 100, 200 years, priesthood began to receive a very different name. In fact, the idea of authority coming from um, the popes was, was denounced, was looked down upon. And, and, and the, the idea of a priesthood became getting a bad name because the Protestants did not claim their authority from a person. They claimed their authority from the Bible. So if they could be educated, if they could get a degree in theology or biblical studies, then they had the right to preach. Now, all of this starts changing by the 19th century when Methodism begins taking over. You know, it's, it's not even on the records in the United States in, in the late 1700s. But by 1850, it's the number one tradition in Amer faith tradition in the Americas. I just wanted to give you a couple examples. This is 1824. And there's this enormous anti-priesthood sentiment across the United States. And I'm reading here from one of the greatest writers of the time. We distinctly know that the popish priests, so popish is their negative word referring to the Western part of Christianity that we refer to today as Catholicism. Popish priests only seek for power that they may employ it against our principles. And it's not just this one statement. I have volumes of stuff that really had an anti-priesthood attitude. And yet, 200 years ago, Angel Moroni came to Joseph in upstate New York, the young prophet at age 17 on September 21st, 1823. And one of the first things he mentioned out of his mouth was that a priesthood was going to be restored. But Joseph comes from this culture, this, this Puritan background of upstate New York, where that was, that was revolting. That was anti-religious. It's anti-Bible, they thought. But we read that Moroni quoted Malachi. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So in order to restore the church, in order to prepare for the Lord's second coming, we needed God's power restored. We needed a priesthood line of authority. Well, the first thing that Joseph Smith does 
in his young years as a prophet is begin translating the Book of Mormon. And I thought, is priesthood mentioned in the Book of Mormon? And I found all sorts of words that related to the priesthood, even though we know Lehi and Sariah and the rest of the people that came with them were not from the tribe of Aaron. They were from Manasseh. They were from Ephraim. And we may have had some from Judah, the Mulekites. But it's interesting to see all these references to the priesthood. Let me just give you one example. Alma 13, 6 through 8. Thus being called by this holy calling and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God to teach his commandments unto the children of men, that they also might enter into his rest. I don't know if you remember, but that means enter into your exaltation. That is an, requires an ordinance to receive that. The high priesthood being after the order of his son, which order was from the foundation of the world. I mean, we are learning so much about the priesthood right here in Alma 13. They were ordained after this manner, being called with a holy calling and ordained with holy ordinances and taking upon them the high priesthood of the holy order. Which calling and ordinance and high priesthood is without beginning or end. Joseph is learning about this for the first time as he's translating this with Oliver writing it down. I mean, this is just powerful information. And I think it not only opened a doorway for Joseph to realize this was something that had been lost and was needed, but it also opened a doorway for new information, for a new things that Joseph didn't have a vision of yet. As Joseph continued translating, he went to 3 Nephi 18.37. The disciples bear record that he, that's Christ, gave them power to give the Holy Ghost. So Joseph knew something was coming. But I thought, I wonder how many words in the Book of Mormon refer to holy order. Obviously, Lehi and Nephi refer to the fact that they had the holy order of God. So they received the higher priesthood, not the Aaronic priesthood. So I looked up other words, Levitical, Aaronic, Melchizedek, Abrahamic, power of God, miracles, visions. I just began looking at all these words that had to do with priesthood power. Are they in the Book of Mormon? And I realized that the Book of Mormon definition of priesthood is much broader. It doesn't mean those males who hold the keys. It is God's power given to earth. So the first introduction that Joseph has to the priesthood is this amazing power of God. Here's a small chart of some of the research that was done. I, I asked for my brother's help. He's a statistician as well as a, a great scriptorian. And he developed some of these ideas for me to look at how the priesthood is organized in the Book of Mormon. I don't know if you have a time to look at my charts or my handouts, but they will be on Scripture Central attached either to this video or on the archives and this priesthood power I have divided, or my brother divided for me, into bestowing the priesthood authority or looking at some attributes of the priesthood. And this was fascinating to divide them up, to organize them, to see how God restored this. And every book of scripture, my brother is just phenomenal in this. His name is Cortland Hilton, and I'm hoping to do a full published article on his research because there is so much here the percentage of the priesthood in the Book of Mormon, where it lies, what does it deal with? Well, I'm not surprised. It deals with prophecy. It deals with teaching. It deals with administration and directing the church. It deals with the offices and the hierarchy and the power and authority of God. It deals with the ordinances, miracles. You know, it's, it's just powerful. And I thought, well, let's, let's look at the Doctrine and Covenants. <laughs> 
Do you remember section 13? When Joseph's translating the Book of Mormon, probably in 3rd Nephi, that verse that I just read about the fact that the Savior required priesthood to be restored, he goes out to pray by the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, and he and Oliver receive a visitation of the angel of John the Baptist. And upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels. Well, the word priesthood itself is only mentioned 130 times in the Doctrine and Covenants. I first looked at the Book of Commandments from sections 1 to 65 that we have, and then I looked at the first published edition in 1835 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That would be sections 1 through 137. And I then looked at the 1921 version as our current version. And if you'd look just at the word priesthood, it's about 130 times. But if you look at this broader scope where we're talking about elders and deacons and priests, then we have over a thousand references. A thousand two hundred is 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 a low estimate of what what we came across. And interestingly, in the first edition of that Doctrine and Covenants, they ordered the chapters sections differently. They didn't put them. Ours are semi chronological, but of course you have to start with chapter or section one because that's the prefaces. Well, the way they did that in the first one was to start with chapter one, and then they put the articles and covenants of the church, because that made the church legal and that gave church direction. So section 20 was right there, 20, 21, 22, right there at the beginning. And then the next ones that they thought were most important were the two on the priesthood. Section 84 with the oath and covenant of the priesthood, and section 107 on the keys of the priesthood. Those two were for there, and then the rest were semi-chronological from there. As I look at this enormous list of words that could be used to refer to priesthood power, to sealing power, to the keys, to the order of the priesthood, and divide them up where they are, I was fascinated to see that Joseph received section 84 on the fifth anniversary of first seeing the golden plates. It's September 22nd, 1832 as they are celebrating Moroni's visitation and the first coming forth of this marvelous work in a wonder that we get to study next year. The dates are important to the Lord. Uh, timing is important to the Lord. And this anniversary brought forth the gift of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. And as I analyzed the oath and covenant of the priesthood, I was touched by seeing the importance of the priesthood in God's great plan. The reason why we have the restoration, the whole reason why we're here as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints began is to prepare for the second coming. And it began with the need to clarify doctrine with the scripture. So it began by opening the canon with the Book of Mormon. Then the priesthood is restored. We begin our missionary work. More revelations come, more scriptures come. We begin to gather Israel. Joseph's receiving counsel to start building a temple in Kirtland, and then Nauvoo, and then Salt Lake, and then St. George, and then, and then, and then. Steve's in the oath and covenant of the priesthood is part of this great ascension to develop a kingdom of priests and priestesses to prepare the world for the Lord's second coming. And this was needed to have the power of the priesthood restored to the earth. Do you remember our prophet has recently said in 2019, sisters, how I yearn for you to understand that the restoration of the priesthood is just as relevant to you as a woman as it is to any man, 
because the Melchizedek priesthood has been restored, both covenant-keeping women and men have access to all the spiritual blessings of the church. Well, I began looking. I opened up the section. And in verse 23 of section 84, Moses sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. You know, the original plan after leaving Egypt was for everyone to ascend the mount. We talked about this in the book of Hebrews. He wanted all to receive the higher law, but they were not ready. They were not prepared. So then I continued reading. And starting on verse 38, we have an if then. And the Lord says, if you covenant to serve the Lord, if you magnify your service to him, if you receive Jesus as your redeemer, and if you live by every word of God, that's verse 44, so verses 38 to 44, then you will be sanctified by the Spirit and you'll receive all the Father has. Well, sanctification by the Spirit and receiving all the Father has is then open to all who do this. No wonder the prophet said it's as important for women as men. If we are seeking priesthood power in our lives, the power of godliness is for all disciples. The oath and the covenant of the priesthood is for us. Continuing on in section 84, just reading verses 33 and 34. For whosoever is faithful in obtaining these two priesthoods and magnifying their calling are sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, and they become the church and kingdom of the elect of God. And also all they who receive this priesthood receive me, saith the Lord. Now, our prophet has just said, this is as applicable to men and women. So as I go back to the Christmas story, did Elizabeth have this? Did Zacharias have this? I don't think so, because that was under the Aaronic order. And this is under the Melchizedek order. Joseph Smith was able to restore so much opportunity so much opportunity. Remember what's going on right now in the 19th century. Women don't own property. Women can't be a voice of, of, of witness. Women can't, you know, there's so many things we weren't able to do. And Joseph is just throwing open the window. Some people have attacked Joseph by saying the Melchizedek priesthood was come up later on. You know, it wasn't part of the original plan. It wasn't even part of the plan. He just developed it for more power at the end. Well, I did a little study on that one. Where do the ideas of the priesthood start coming chronologically? 1829 is our first one. Look at 1830. We've got two references. 1831, we already have eight. By 1832, there's 27 references. You, know, you just keep going. The high peak is 1835. And that's when section 107 is given. Now, section 107 is the organization of the priesthood to be used at that time of the church as we began to grow. We were still very small. 1835 is the year that the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is formed. So we get section 107, I believe, in conjunction or in preparation <laughs> for that organization of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. But it talks about different orders. And as the church grew, we needed more. And of course, we know we had a bishop uh, right away in Kirtland and stake presidents over time. And as they grew in Nauvoo, and initially the deacons were all married in the book of Timothy and Titus, I mean, that we read. But now, of course, we believe that we want all to help and serve, and different callings come to different ages. Elder Oaks referred to the keys of the priesthood, section 107, in an April General Conference talk in 2014. He said, ultimately, all keys of the priesthood are held by the Lord Jesus Christ 
whose priesthood it is. He is the one who determines what keys are delegated to mortals and how those keys will be used. So I want to make sure that there's, I'm clearly defining a difference between the tradition in the um, restored scripture of the priesthood being an umbrella of God's power. All of God's power is included. And that's how Joseph defined it sometimes versus those with the keys, which are male, very, very few. Um, and those are given just to a few people for a short period of time, very few for life. One way for me to help understand this is by going back and seeing how Joseph used these words. And do you remember when he's in Liberty Jail, most of his communication was with the church was through letters. Occasionally people would come in and visit and he'd be able to stretch his legs and go out and visit. But most of the time it was just through letters. One of those letters, December 16th, 1838, this is before Section 121, a couple months before. He's writing to everybody back in, in Quincy, and he's saying, Dear well-beloved brethren, and when we say brethren, we mean those who have continued faithful in Christ, men, women, and children. Ah, he's using the same definition that we have in the New Testament, which is just the way Joseph often does it. The vocabulary for the restoration is scriptural, and then it grows. So in the New Testament, when King James says brethren, it is usually the word that means disciple, you know, those who are faithful in Christ. And that is exactly how Joseph is defining it. So as I go back and I read the writings of Joseph, it's this greater umbrella because he's saying it's to the brethren. So it helps to say, who is his audience? Is he talking about priesthood keys, which are held by a few men because that's who God has delegated them to? Or is it a broader view? So here we have section 121. This letter also comes from Liberty Jail, of course. Verse 34 and 36 says, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because their hearts are set too much upon the things of this world. They aspire to the honors of men. and They do not learn this one lesson, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. And that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon principles of righteousness. And then he goes into the gentleness and the meekness and the love unfeigned. There is no power, can or ought to be maintained, except on these principles of righteousness. I am convinced that God's power through the Spirit, through the gifts of the Holy Ghost, has a major portion that is also referred to as priesthood power. So let me just give you some, a little bit more research on that through Joseph Smith's statements and our modern revelations. When Joseph was talking about the priesthood in 1839, when they first up in Nauvoo in one of his sermons outside, before they had any buildings large enough to gather, when the malaria is starting to spread that first summer, he said, the priesthood is an everlasting principle and existed with God from eternity and will to eternity without beginning of days or end of years. The keys have to be brought from heaven whenever the gospel is sent. The power of the Melchizedek priesthood is to have the power of endless lives, holding the keys of the power and blessings. So Joseph is also clear to refer to the priesthood power of God manifest on earth in healings, in tongues, in visions, and whenever we have the principles of righteousness, of gentleness, meekness, kindness, and love unfeigned. 
and then a separate definition for those with keys to actually ordain and have the saving ordinances accomplished to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Moving on to January 6th, bitter winter in Illinois, 1842. Joseph is writing a letter. Jehovah has promised his servants to prepare the earth for the return of his glory, even a celestial glory and a kingdom of priests and a kingdom of God and the lamb forever on Mount Zion in the restitution of all things. I think Joseph had received the green light to go ahead on the endowment, not only for men, but for women, for ceilings, and for this higher order of the priesthood that would be shared by couples. We then have the organization, the Relief Society. But I just want to start out with Sarah Granger Kimball, one of those great founders who initiated the ideas that then opened up to the great plan that Joseph had, and not just helping sisters be able to serve one another, but to create a kingdom of priestesses. And what Sarah Granger Kimball recorded at that first meeting of March 17, 1842, I have desired to organize the sisters in the order of the priesthood, and I now have the key by which to do it. Continuing on in that meeting up in the upper floor of the red brick store, Sarah Granger Kimball said that he was going to do it under the priesthood after the pattern of the priesthood. Now, this has been published and recorded many times. I've got my footnotes here and there on the handouts as well. But at this third Relief Society meeting, as they're being held regularly in March, the prophet said on March 30th, 1842, and this now is written by Eliza R. Snow, who is the, taking minutes at the meeting at the same time, that Joseph wanted to make this society a kingdom of priests, as in Enoch's day, as in Paul's day. So that tells me right away that women were able to have their higher in initiatories and their endowments and their sealing powers, not only in the early Christian church, as we've been talking about throughout the epistles of Paul, but in Enoch's day. And this is powerful information. Continuing at that same Third Relief Society meeting in March of 42, Joseph said, the society should move according to the ancient priesthood. Hence, there should be a select society separate from all the evils of the world, choice, virtuous, and holy. Well, Joseph did not want it to grow too fast. He kept telling Emma and her counselors and the early first 19 sisters that came to that first meeting, don't allow too many in. I want everyone to come in to be very virtuous. And he was trying to create the people that were going to serve in the temple as priestesses. But the women just flocked, flocked in. I've got a little chart here that I made. These are just my notes from looking at the Joseph Smith papers, reading all of Eliza R. Snow's minutes of the Early Relief Society meeting and counting up exactly how many members are there. So the first meeting, 19, the next one, 68, growing way too fast for Joseph. And so he gives him this slow down talk on March 30th. On April 14th, I counted 88 members that were listed in attendance. I don't know how many were actually there on the 19th, but by the 28th, we have over 151 members. And by March of 44, we have over 1,300. So it grew far too fast for, jo <laughs> for Joseph. As people remember back to this, they recorded, this is from Bathsheba Bigler-Smith. The prophet Joseph wanted to make a kingdom of priests and priestesses. 
As we look shortly after that time, in June 15th of 1842, Joseph is just speaking on the gift of the Holy Ghost, but it is then published as an editorial in the newspaper. And it says, we believe that the gift of the Holy Ghost is necessary to make and organize the priesthood. Well, this was very interesting to me. He continues on. No man can be called to fill any office in the ministry without it. We also believe in prophecy, in tongues, in visions, in revelations, in gifts, and healings, that these cannot be enjoyed without the gift of the Holy Ghost. So this tie between the gift of the Holy Ghost and the priesthood, between God's power and the gift of the Holy Ghost, because we know as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're commanded by Paul, by Moroni, by Joseph, by the Lord to seek the gifts of the Spirit. And yet he's tying them to the power of the priesthood. August 27th, 1843, Joseph said, the Holy Ghost is God's messenger to administer in all those priesthoods. He's talking about the power of God. This is available to men and women. It's once again, the overarching umbrella of the priesthood. So I I go back and I look at the scriptures so differently now that our prophet has said the oath and covenant of the priesthood should work for you women as well as men. And all these years of trying to figure out why did Joseph say the gifts of the Holy Ghost could not work without the priesthood when he received a vision before he got the priesthood. His mother raised a child from the dead before he had the priesthood. Well, I think it's because he's referring to the power of God. And if there's going to be a healing, of course it's through the power of God. If there's going to be a vision, of course it's through the power of God. And that's why we are encouraged to seek for these gifts. And the greatest gift, of course, is is charity. As Joseph begins to organize the Relief Society, I want to just pause and look at all the years of temple preparation that were part of the Restoration. If he is trying to organize a kingdom of priests and priestesses so that the bride can be ready for the bridegroom that we will talk about next week in Revelation, look at this temple prep, 1829. He translates the Sermon on the Temple. 1830, the Book of Moses is translated with that beautiful temple text. 1831, the Law of Consecration is introduced. 1832, the Degrees of Glory in Section 76 is introduced. 1832 and 33, the Obedience to the Celestial Laws are introduced in Section 88. Anyway, you can keep reading it. The Visions, Elijah, the Baptism, the Kirtland Temple Dedication, Revelation on Eternal Marriage, the command to build the Nauvoo Temple in 41, Relief Society in 42, and the key words of the priesthood come as he's translating the book of Abraham. They're published in 1842. All of these are very necessary. And as that Nauvoo Temple is coming up, Joseph feels like he's running out of time. He needs to introduce the endowment earlier. People need the power from it. And so on May 4th, 1842, in the upstairs of the red brick store, Joseph calls in a few dear people and has them help set up the room the day before, and then opens it to those nine men who received their first endowment. We're told in the record that the upstairs room was divided with hanging rugs and decorated with plants and murals to look like the Garden of Eden. In his small office, he had a room closed off for washing. In the storage room, he had it closed off for an anointing. And on May 4th, as those people gathered together that day, it was recorded in the history of the church, which is, you can also read it in the Joseph Smith papers, that it was a Wednesday, 1842. I spent the day in the upper part of the store, 
instructing them in the principles and order of the priesthood, attending to washings, anointings, endowments, and the communication of the keys pertaining to the Aaronic priesthood, and so on to the highest order of the Melchizedek priesthood, setting forth the order pertaining to the Ancient of Days, and all these plans and principles by which anyone is enabled to secure the fullness of these blessings and abide in the presence of Elohim in the eternal worlds. In this council was instituted in the ancient order of things for the first time in these last days. A year later, June 11th, 1843, Joseph is again preaching in Nauvoo. He asked, what was the object of the gathering of the Jews together of the people of God in any age of the world? The main object was to build unto the Lord a house whereby he could reveal unto his people the ordinances of his house and the glories of his kingdom. Skipping ahead a little bit. It is for the same purpose that God gathers together the people in the last days to build unto the Lord and house to prepare them for the ordinances and endowments, washings, and anointings. This is powerful. And it all relates to this beautiful idea of the New Testament beginning at the temple and Joseph's first introduction to, by Angel Moroni of the priesthood power that would then lead to temple work and lead to the greatest blessings of exaltation. One year later, after the men received their endowment, Emma was ready. Emma agreed to live all the promises that God asked her to do. And in late September 1843, Joseph took her to in their home upstairs in her room and prepared a tub of hot water for her initiatories and anointings. She also received her endowment there. On September 28th at 7 p.m., we're told in the Joseph Smith Papers journals in a separate ordinance performed this following September, this is that 1843, Joseph and Emma Smith were anointed, ordained to the highest and holiest order of the priesthood. I appreciate this statement by Andrew E. Hatt. In many ways, 28th September 1843 must have been one of the greatest days of Joseph Smith's life. He had seen the inauguration of the highest ordinances that it was possible for any man or woman to receive in mortality. And shortly thereafter, Emma was able to give the washings and anointings to other women. Now, of course, Joseph could only give it to his wife, Emma. No one else received these from Joseph, only Emma. And then Emma was able to provide these ordinances for a few of the Sisters of the Relief Society who then began giving them to more and more. But that day, Violet Kimball, Leonora Taylor, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, Harriet Adams, Mary Fielding Smith, Marianne Young, Mercy Rachel Fielding, and Jeanette Richards, wives of the Twelve Apostles, were able to receive their initiatories. And later, a holy and highest quorum was established with 65 individuals who had prayer meetings together prior to the opening of the temple. Bathsheba Smith recorded, Once when speaking in one of our general fast meetings, Joseph Smith said that we did not know how to pray or to have our prayers answered. But when I and my husband had our endowments, now hers were in December of 1843, Joseph Smith presiding, 
He taught us the order of prayer. And Joseph Smith publicly explained to the saints that in the endowment, they would be taught essential teachings on prayer and on angelic administrations. Now, in the early church days, the washing was done literally, not symbolically. And hence, there was a delay on when these things could happen. Elder Talmadge. In the sacred endowments associated with the ordinances pertaining to the house of the Lord, women shares with man the blessings of the priesthood. Then shall woman reign by divine right, a queen in her resplendent realm of her glorified state, even as exalted man shall stand priest and king unto the Most High God. Mortal eye cannot see nor mind comprehend the beauty, glory, and majesty of a righteous woman made perfect in the celestial kingdom of God. That comes from 1914, and it was published in the Young Women's Journal. Moving ahead a little bit later to the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, we read that the fullness of the priesthood is shared by husband and wives who are sealed in the temple. And I remember being so ecstatic when I heard Elder Ballard say in General Conference in 2013, in the eternal perspective, both procreative and priesthood power are shared by husband and wife. And even more recently, at a women's conference with our General Relief Society presidency in 2019, we heard, all women have access to priesthood power through their baptismal and temple covenants. You are blessed with priesthood power as you faithfully keep those covenants. And then a few months later, our prophet said in General Conference of April 2019, in the Holy Temple, you are authorized to perform and officiate in priesthood ordinances. And as your understanding increases, and as you exercise faith in the Lord and his priesthood power, your ability to draw upon this spiritual treasure that the Lord has made available to you will increase. You know, I go back when I was a child, President Kimball was my prophet. And I remember him saying, we are born to become kings and queens and priests and priestesses to our Lord. And most recently, the slide that I have from Elder Oaks is 2020. The power of the priesthood exists both in the church and in the family organization. But priesthood power and priesthood authority function differently in the church than they do in the family. All of this is according to the principles the Lord has established. And the purpose of God's plan is to lead his children to eternal life. In addition to Elder Oaks, our prophet has also said something similar. The heavens are just as open to women who are endowed with God's power flowing from their priesthood covenants as they are to men who bear the priesthood. I pray that truth will register upon each of your hearts because I believe it will change your life. And so this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of the Son of God, may we draw upon his powers as men and women ordained and blessed by priesthood power that we can go to the temple more regularly, that we can live our covenants more thoroughly, that we can honor the priesthood garment night and day more completely in our lives, to wear it as a symbol of the armor of God and become prepared to receive our Savior in the last days. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.